Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the essential shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined by my partner in this strategic enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, glad to have you. Well, it's uh, good to be back, and I'm particularly glad because of who our guest is. He's uh, Michael Vickers, uh, who has just published an incredible, truly incredible memoir called By All Means Available, which talks about his quite extraordinary career as a special forces soldier and a CIA operative. I'm sure that the high point of his career was getting a PhD at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. But uh, probably the second high point was when he got hired by a fellow named Eric Edelman at the Department of Defense. Of course, he, he rose to be the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Among his many professional accomplishments, Uh, Those of you who've seen Charlie Wilson's War will know that he figures in that, as he did in reality, um, as really the, in many ways, the mastermind of our support uh, in the struggle of uh, Afghans against their Soviet occupiers. Of course, he was also the guy who was really the driving force behind the raid that uh, eventually killed Osama bin Laden. And on top of all that, he's a deep thinker about the nature of war, as I can personally testify. So uh, we have lots of stuff to talk about with him. And Mike, we're delighted to have you here. Eric, do you want to begin the interrogation or should I? I'm happy to kickstart it. Mike, first, thanks a million for joining us. We're really uh, grateful to have you. Let me extend and revise Elliot's remarks only a tiny little bit which is to say the book really is terrific. It's a fantastic read among uh, everything else. And it put me in mind uh, more than anything of Bob Gates's first memoir uh, before he returned to government to be Secretary of Defense. So I hope that uh, following in that footstep, you'll have a chance to go back into government and have a second memoir as well. Amen. But maybe you could start um, kind of uh, where... Uh, Elliot started, which is to talk a little bit about uh, your role in, I mean, I'd be happy to have you talk about your time as a a Green Beret, uh, you know, uh, which is a very interesting facet of this incredible memoir. But I think for our listeners, uh, one thing that they'll be really interested in is the support that the United States provided to the Afghan resistance to Soviet occupation, as Elliot said. So tell us a little bit about how did you get into that? It seems like a very unusual kind of first tour, uh, essentially, for a, a CIA operations officer. How did this all come about? And tell us a little bit about what it was like. So I had spent 10 years as a Green Beret before going into the CIA's clandestine service. And half of that time was preparing for World War Three. you know, should general war break out uh, in Europe. Uh, or, you know, do special operations in Eastern Europe, organize resistance, you know, that sort of thing. And learned a lot of things that turned out to be very useful 
when I became a CIA officer, given where the world was at that time, and we had uh, sponsoring insurgencies all around the world. You know, and so after I joined CIA and had to go through various training, I was sent in for the invasion of Grenada and then put on a special task force dealing with our responses to the Beirut bombings of our embassy and then Marine barracks. And then after I completed all my training, I was selected for this new job uh, that combined two, the Afghanistan Covert Action Program Officer, the single individual that uh, sort of oversaw the program, uh, and then the Senior Paramilitary Operations Advisor, the, the sort of the special operator uh, advising the top leadership, the, the, the regional leadership at CIA. And I described it as the job of a lifetime, and it uh, was the culmination of my decade and a half operational uh, part of my career. At the time I took the job, um, the budget for the program had just been quadrupled by Congress. Uh, Charlie Wilson, where the movie name comes from. CIA had asked for a 10% increase and it got a 300% increase. And so uh, you, know, you don't see that that often in government. And I thought, you know, the possibilities had expanded dramatically. You know, our goal for the first five years of the Soviet occupation was just to make it as costly as possible with no prospect of winning. Um, but with this big increase in resources, I started thinking, what could we do to really strengthen the resistance? And, and so that led on a path, a series of things to provide more complex weapons, dramatically increase the scale, the speed at which we were doing things. Um, so everything went up by a factor of 10. And about six months into it, I realized that, you know, we would have a chance at winning if we doubled our budget again. And that caused the director of CIA a few heart palpitations when I wrote a cable from Islamabad about it, but uh, eventually went along and Congress gave us the money. And then we started adding in more sophisticated Western weapons, intelligence, training, but things like the Stinger, the blowpipe missile that uh, Prime, former Prime Minister Maggie Thatcher approved, and uh, all those things in combination. And we had a secret alliance with almost every uh, power in the world at the time, uh, China, uh, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, the UK, Egypt, all were in on this. And so we were orchestrating large-scale but secret coalition war. And so it was just an extraordinary experience. And the Soviets escalated at the same time we did in 1985. So we had this cage match for a year. But at the end of that year, Gorbachev started looking for the exit. So let me ask you just a quick question about that. First, I'd like to just point out that I think, um, although there, it's a wonderful movie, I thought Charlie Wilson's War, it does make it sound like the only thing that was going on with Stinger missiles. And I think the one of the great strengths of the book is it really lays out this was, as you said, it's, it was a whole bunch of things, not just that particular weapon system, but you know, the scale and, and so forth. So I mean, I'm curious, during the course of your career, you know, you've bumped up many times into bureaucracy doing its thing. How do you assess what held us back from doing those sorts of things until you came along with the kinds of resources that Charlie Wilson and others sent your way? That is to say, was there a simply a failure of imagination? Was it something else? And does that have any implications for where we are today? Yeah, so I think it does. Um, so one, as you correctly point out, um, 
you know, the stinger was um, introduced into conflict, uh, the Afghan conflict, in September 86, and Gorbachev had already made the decision months before to start leaving. So Stinger played an important role. It was very effective. Uh, it helped ensure that the Soviets didn't change their mind, um, but they were on their out, uh, on their way out uh, even before that because of all the other things we were doing. Uh, so it wasn't just some wonder weapon or you know that turned the tide of the conflict, as I as I try to show. And then to your question about bureaucracy and and doing its thing in imagination, you know, the CIA was doing a good job with the mission it was given. But again, all the analysts thought there's no way we could win no matter what we did. Um, you know, a tough call. And, you know, the program was already reasonable size, but it was mostly limited to small arms, things that could hurt the Soviets, but not really drive them out. And so it took this big infusion of resources, then a recalibration of strategy. You know, our friend Steve Rosen, uh, recently retired from Harvard, was a junior NSC staffer during this strategic review that President Reagan signed in a then super classified national security decision directive that changed our objective to driving them out. So, you know, a combination of bottom up, I think, and a very lean chain of command. You know, one of the things I try to show in the book is that individuals really matter. You know, you can have talented individuals with different skills, but some are going to be more, you know, have different attributes, be more risk averse than others. And I was really lucky that I had two bosses in my operational chain of command that really believed in me and let me do strategy as long as it was working. And uh, one of them, Bert Dunn had been one of the founding members of the Special Forces and was a fluent Pashto speaker. And, uh, and it was a lean chain of command. You know, it was me to them, um, to the director, and then the White House and the top interagency with George Schultz and key people at the State Department, uh, Mike Armacost and uh, Morton Abramowitz played an important role. Uh, Freda Clay at Defense and Weinberger. But, you know, it was a handful of people that really pushed in this direction. And, you know, I was doing the operational stuff. But uh, you saw that again, I think, in our um, campaigns against Al-Qaeda after 2007, when President Bush decided to really switch strategy. You know, both of you were there at the time uh, in different roles, you know, the last uh, year and a half of the Bush administration. That, again, I think, was made possible by kind of a, a confluence of the right people um, you know, to take the fight to Al-Qaeda that way. And then President Obama continued it, at least for the first four years of his administration, and it paid great dividends. So, you know, I don't know if it's so much an end running of bureaucracy or just streamlining and really making it work, but it's, it's as much accident, to be honest, as it is um, designed sometimes. You know, it's just the confluence events of having a lot of like-minded people, or not a lot, but enough, a critical mass in critical positions. Mike, as I read the book, I have to tell you, I <clears throat> was struck repeatedly by how much uh, you and I were traveling on sort of parallel paths and then our careers sort of intertwining with with people like Elliot and Al Bernstein, who had been my teacher at, at Cornell and, and with whom I encountered again at Yale. When you were on the uh, Beirut uh, bombing task force, I was working for George Schultz. I had to wake him up in the middle of the night when that embassy was bombed. And uh, 
obviously the invasion of Grenada. Uh, I was in Washington while he was down in Georgia at the Augusta National Golf Course. While you were, you know, uh, jumping into Grenada with the U.S. Task Force, I was in Moscow working um, on, I had on the desk and then in the embassy in the period you were running this program, I had the Soviets in the third world brief. And I actually wrote a cable in late, uh, late 1987 saying Soviets were on their way out, uh, which was not greeted with a a lot of uh, approbation in the, you know, central intelligence agency, because it ran into a lot of the buzzsaw of we, you know, we can't win and they can't possibly be on their way out that you were talking about. I'm just curious, when did you in your own mind think this is over, we've won, they're, they're getting out? When did, when did that occur to you and what prompted it? It was really, uh, the, the, you know, the question you're answering was probably um, late winter 1986, after most of our strategy had been in place, the Stinger decision had been made, the Bullpipe decision, our resources had gone up by, you know, a factor of 12, and, you know, everything was programmed and Gorbachev started making public noises, you know, the bleeding wound and other things that we got to get out of here. And then we had, you know, clandestine reporting on, on some of that, too. Um, the analysts didn't really buy it yet at that point. And there was a division uh, in CIA, the Near Eastern analysts who covered Afghanistan and the Near East were a little more bullish than the Soviet analysts. You know, it's kind of I don't know, rooting for the home team or something, or, you know, the, 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 the folks you've studied the most, but, uh, um, but I, you know, my first thing was we've got quadruple the resources. We really ought to look at our strategy and maybe we can do a lot more. I didn't really think we could win at that point, you know, or really have this conviction. I just thought we ought to try. And then one thing led to another over the next um, 15 months, really, that by the end of that, I was convinced that that they were done. But, you know, part of that, too, was um, Gorbachev. You know, Gorbachev was a very different man. In some respects, he was the same guy. But when he came in, he tried to win the war. You know, he did a big surge. He gave his generals, you know, it's kind of like Obama with the Afghanistan surge. You know, he gave him 18 months, Do you know, do your best, win this thing. Um but, you know, and maybe to consolidate his position, but he was quite successful politically and, you know, as you know better than I, and kind of consolidating political power. And, you know, and more he saw this as an impediment to what he really wanted to do, which was transform the Soviet Union, um, that became dominant. And, um, you know, so that plus the fact that I thought we were just you know, everything was going up. The, the, the cost to the Soviets was going up so high that, um, you know, they would they would find a way to disengage. So can I, I let me ask um, a question about the, the two big critiques that have been made of the of the Afghan war that we waged, not of you, because, you know, you were doing your job. But I think there are two critiques out there. And Eric, you may wish to modify these. But one is, well, actually, it was the Pakistanis gaming us all along. They really were controlling where our resources went to, and they went to bad people. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we just ended up, you know, uh, being people providing the resources, but were in some ways uh, chumps for the much more cunning 
ISI, sort of Pakistani uh, intelligence service. The other, uh, which is even deeper, and I think it's kind of hinted at in Charlie Wilson's war, I suppose, and that's, uh, you know, all we did is we created the conditions for the emergence of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan for, you know, radical Islamists who we had been arming against the uh, Soviets and it all blew back uh, in our faces on 9-11. How, just curious how you react to those two uh, arguments. Sure. So, um, you know, Pakistan was the frontline state with the most to risk, you know, so China and Saudi and uh, Egypt were our principal arms suppliers, not the only ones. Saudis provided, you know, half the funding, the Brits and others, you know, helped in a lot of, lot of ways. Um, but Pakistan was really the frontline state that made the program possible. And there was always this fear that you would have a Soviet invasion of Pakistan. Now they, Soviets, they did a lot of cross-border stuff. They really didn't have the resources to fully invade Pakistan. They, you know, most of their force was oriented toward NATO, then China, then Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan was a very distant fourth, uh, which limited their ability to surge and everything else. But we essentially ceded control to the Pakistanis because of their territory and their vulnerability for the first five years of the program. And one of the critical things that I felt we had to do to make this escalation of ours possible was to bring that strategic control back to CIA for a while. You know, and part of CIA's tradition too is the field chief of station is really the commander who runs things. And for these two critical years, all the decisions were made in Washington. You know, they really weren't made in the field. And the job of our chief of station was to really convince the Pakistanis to go along with it, which was often bare knuckles fight. And, uh, but we did succeed in doing that. And uh, our interests were more aligned with the Pakistanis then. You know, Zia had this famous quote about he'll determine the temperature at which the pot boils, but the pot boiled hotter and hotter, and he went along with it, including um, Stinger. And so we essentially got our way be- between 84 and 86, and then just continued to execute the last couple of years. So I don't think um, it was a case of wily ones. Now, to your question about uh, which groups they favored, they did, you know, there were four fundamentalist groups, more Islamist groups, and three somewhat more secular traditionalist groups. And the fundamentalists were the best fighters, but they differed a lot. And their favorite was the worst of the bunch, led by Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who we all knew in later life. Uh, and then one group that was pretty good at the time that had the Haqqanis uh, in it, uh, Yunus Kallas um, uh, group, uh, you know, they went over to the dark side after the Taliban took over. So and Masood's group uh, and Sayafs ended up on the other side of that with the Afghan government. And so it was mixed. We had... Um, our own independent channels to these groups so we could balance out uh, to some degree uh, what was going where and, and, and the support we provided. Um, and so the challenge for us, um, you know, as I point out in the book, periodically the Pakistanis would convince commanders to do some dumb things like to try to take and hold ground where Soviet air power could hurt them, you know, just bad operational decisions, not, wily political stuff or ulterior motives, just bad, bad operations. And so we had those kinds of fights. Um, 
but it was really when we disengaged, you know, beginning in 1990 with the Pressler Amendment that we had to cut off aid to Pakistan after the Soviets withdrew, that things started really going down downhill. And then, you know, it takes the, the communist Afghan government actually outlasts the Soviets. And when the Soviets cut aid off, well, the Soviet Union goes away, they cut aid off, then the government falls, Mujahideen take over, but you've got civil war. And then we're long gone. You know, we're out of the region completely long, long since. And the Pakistanis back to Taliban in 94 to 96. Taliban take over most of Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda comes in, you know, to the second part of your question. But there's not a straight line between the defeat of the Soviets and 9-11. You know, it's not inevitable. You know, in other words, one, you've got 12 years, but two, there's a series of U.S. decisions of disengagement. Might have been tough to stay given the circumstances and the law on Pakistan's nuclear program. Um, but, you know, things we did in counterterrorism after 9-11, you know, I certainly wish we had done before 9-11. You know, one of the cardinal principles is don't give these bastards any sanctuary. And we did that for several years. And one of the things we saw after 9-11 is every time they went to a new place, if we gave them 18 months, the threat to the homeland would go up, you know, and we'd adjust our policy and take it away. And so I think both critiques are, you know, certainly the one about 9-11 is inevitable, is wrongheaded. It depended a lot on U.S. decisions. Um, that we and the Pakistanis interests weren't fully aligned in the 80s and that they got really got misaligned after we withdrew, I think is right. And that, of course, caused us problems in our long Afghanistan campaign. You know, we needed Pakistan for Al-Qaeda. They did all right for that. We needed them for nuclear security and our counterproliferation goals. Um, they backed people killing Americans for a lot of that war. You know, and, and we were kind of stuck with, you know, this frenemy, you know, this, this this unique ally that's killing Americans while helping with us. And that that's the truth. So if I could just ask one quick follow up and then over to you, Eric, given all that, how do you feel about the Biden administration's decision to completely disengage from Afghanistan? Yeah, I think it was a major mistake. I think, you know, just strategically, we had transition to Afghan security. And Afghan security was dependent on U.S. aid, small U.S. advisors, and the willingness to use U.S. air power if needed. But that's it. And contractor support. And contractor support, right. And so you needed all those things. You know, it's not an in, uh, inconsiderable cost, but it, you know, it was a successful transition and, if, you know, it would look after our counterterrorism interests uh, in, in the region. It would look after our counterproliferation interests. Afghanistan's located between China, Russia, and Iran. You know, it's pretty good um, real estate. The Afghans, you know, not only helped us win the Cold War, they helped us uh, kick al-Qaeda out and then, you know, keep them out. And then the problem shifted to Pakistan and elsewhere. And so I think morally... And strategically, it was a wrongheaded um, decision. I, I don't like this monism and strategy that, you know, even though China's our biggest problem right now and Russia's a big problem and it really is about great powers, you can't completely ignore Iran, North Korea, or the jihadists. You know, you got to have a grand strategy that 
deals with them all in some way. And counterterrorism now ought to be a real economy of force effort. But we don't, you know, the idea that uh, it's a good thing for us to have the Taliban take over and defeat us after 20 years is just horrendous strategically. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, nor I. I completely agree, Mike. So so, uh, um, this is probably a good segue uh, to, you know, a second part of your amazing career, uh, which is based on everything we've just been discussing. You would think this would be, you know, um, a trampoline to much greater success in the CIA as a more senior uh, operations officer. It didn't work out that way. So talk a little bit about that and how, as you describe in the book, you decided to uh, accumulate some intellectual capital uh, after this pr- pretty uh, amazing and, and stellar performance at CIA. Yeah, so I had a phenomenal run. And, you know, I, I like to say I got many, many more years of experience in a short period of time because I worked across the agency and with all the seniors and had you know, responsibility for a big chunk of the Directorate of Operations resources. And, uh, you know, so I knew all the seniors because of my job across different regional areas because of the global scope of the program. And, and you know, several of them told me, you know, something like this, if you're lucky, comes around once in a generation. What are you going to do the next 20 years while you wait for this to happen again? And, you know, and that that kind of weighed on me. And I thought, um, uh, you know, I didn't really want to just start over. I had, you know, almost 15 years of operational experience. I was offered a couple of good jobs at chief of base in, in a region and uh, others, but it all seemed like it would be several years of stepping back from what I had been doing. And I had, you know, I wasn't a good student in high school. Uh, I, uh, finished my degree much better at the University of Alabama while I was in the army, but I'd never really had a serious, well, I shouldn't say that, I'll, I'll offend people, but, uh, I, you know, the Cold War was coming to an end and I thought, okay, time to try something different and then come back into government. And so I went to Wharton first and then uh, uh, decided I really missed national security and met up with Elliot. Elliot uh, accepted me into his PhD program. It was kind of a mid-career training program, and and that's where I really got all my education. And uh, I think then it set the stage for what happened later. It wasn't by total design. I mean, I thought I might end up teaching for a while or uh, being a you know, strategy consultant, uh, you know, you know, the story, Eric, I was kind of called in back into government by a series of accidents later, or uh, you may have a different view, but uh, it wasn't an accident. (laughs) But I, you know, it's, it, it's just, I don't have regrets. I'm very fortunate the way it worked out. And it, and it did, if I hadn't done that, I don't think I would have been able to do what I did later in life had I not taken that break and gotten more education and thought about the rise of China and the revolution in military affairs and other things in that period. And so, you know, I credit Elliot and Andy Marshall, you know, really for that formative period um, that helped me do other things later. Well, while you were working on your PhD with uh, Elliot, which, by the way, I, I think Elliot will confirm this or not. I think it may have broken the record for being uh, one of the longest 
dissertations that SICE has, has awarded? You know, it was very interesting, but it was the size of a cinder block. Yeah, it's three <laughs> volumes and over a thousand pages. But, you know, it's 4,000 years of history. It took almost that long to write. But, yeah. But while you were doing that, you were also you also were uh, working in the Office of Net Assessment. Talk a little bit about how, because we've discussed on other uh, podcasts, including recently with um, Andy Hone and, and Tom Shanker about their book, which has the spirit of Andy Marshall kind of throughout it. Talk a little bit about, you know, uh, the couple of years you worked for Andy Marshall. Yeah, so it was um, 93 to 95. I had finished my coursework and was, you know, doing my PhD exams and uh, uh, starting on the dissertation. You know, I had a couple of years of coursework before that. Um, with Elliot and others, and and including Al Bernstein that you mentioned earlier, which was fantastic. And uh, when I went to work for Andy, you know, my my dissertation was on the theory and history of revolutions in military affairs going back to, you know, chariots, you know, kind of beginning of organized warfare. And, uh, uh, and there was this interest in an emerging revolution in military affairs. Andy Krepinevich was an officer in the uh, under Andy Marshall and had written a preliminary assessment about it. And so uh, Marshall was one interested in the PhD work I was doing, but also um, how I would apply it to warfare 30 years in the future. And so I got this tasking, what would war between the U.S. and China look like in 2020? And, uh, you know, in 1993, and one of the things the Chinese had done is they were the best students of Desert Storm. You know, one of their big conclusions, you know, a lot of foreign militaries had looked at Desert Storm and said, you know, what do we do to prevent this happening to us? And the Chinese drew the conclusion that do not let the United States build up forces in theater against, you know, keep them out. And that's kind of the origins of the anti-access aerial denial. So I wrote a paper uh, about warfare in 2020 that ended up leading to a series of war games that um, CSBA and other think tanks did for a number of years. And, uh, you know, it turned out to be reasonably accurate about what the world looks like today in terms of the kinds of weapons, you know, we're seeing the not only uh, the Air Force shift to longer range strike and Navy uh, undersea dominance being the central element, but, you know, the emergence of space as a contested domain and cyber and all that sort of stuff. So unmanned uh, aviation, unmanned aviation. Exactly. Yeah. And and unmanned systems across warfare domains. And so um, that really got me interested in this future war and China as our next competitor in several decades uh, issue. So I actually I'm curious because we're you know I'm sure we'll get into the uh, you know, then your tour back in uh, in in government, but um, I think one of the things that's always fascinated me about you, Mike, is on the one hand you have this incredible career in the you know what you might call the war in the shadows of uh, covert action and guerrilla warfare insurgency, um, you know all, all that sort of stuff. And yet you've also had a very, very keen interest in high-intensity warfare, uh, as represented by that outstanding dissertation of yours. And I, I, I wonder, particularly now, when we, you know, we're seeing a very large conventional war in Ukraine, 
And as you said, there's, uh, you know, people are talking seriously about what conflict with China might look like. That would be another kind of big conventional war. How do those, how do you think those two forms of warfare are going to interact in the future? And, and I mean, in the near future, like the next 10, 20 years. You know, as you, as you said, um, you know, the Cold War um, was fought indirectly uh, through covert action and proxy war and, you know, mix of conventional and, and, and unconventional, you know, and I had done the unconventional side in the Cold War. And then, you know, circumstances uh, after 9-11 brought counterterrorism to the center of our strategy uh, with the war with Al-Qaeda and its allies. And I had a background in that. And then what was new, the drone campaigns and things, you know, I adapted to that quite quickly. That that was natural. The um, kind of the future, my segue into high intensity conventional war, you know, other than being, you know, in the army for 10 years, even though the special forces and, and you know, and being a student of those kinds of things, um, really came about from thinking about future war and the Andy Marshall problem, uh, you know, how it would change. And so that and the dissertation, as you said, looking at previous periods of significant change, you know, and high intensity warfare. And that took, you know, a decade to develop enough expertise in things like space or cyber or uh, undersea warfare and long range strike. Um, but I did that essentially from the 90s until um, shortly after 9-11, then when I started, you know, bringing back in the irregular war, I, I hardly thought about anything irregular for 10 years. And, you know, so I developed some expertise. And then, you know, how it relates to today, um, you know, the Ukraine war has a lot in common with Afghanistan against the Soviets. It's conventional war, it's higher intensity, it's a lot more artillery and mobile armor and other stuff. Um, but some of the strategic problems are similar. You know, you just don't have to go through all the covert stuff. And, you know, the, as you say, it's more high intensity. Um, and then a war with China has a number of dimensions to it. If there is a direct conflict, you know, not only might it require emphasis on, you know, some new things, space and, and cyber, but changes in the way we project air power or naval power, et cetera. Um, but you still have this nuclear overhang of, you know, escalation risk that we had in the Cold War. And, and, even, and, um, and so one, it may deter that kind of conflict, but if it occurs, you know, there will really be that, that escalation issue to manage if, if, uh, and it may limit war, but it also may turn out to be more protracted than we think in a sense that, you know, when great powers go to war, it's a clash of systems and stuff. And so things like the industrial base matters and how many munitions you can produce and all, you know, all sorts of things. And, uh, uh, so there's a lot of additional factors that that would go into that that you know we need to be prepared for. And then, um, you know, I started wrestling with some of that when Eric brought me back into government and expanded the the Solik portfolio from just a regular warfare to the department's operational capabilities, so nuclear weapons on down. And so again, it gave me um, with the defense planning guidance and lots of other things to try to shape the future of the military. 
So Eric, how did you, how did you find Mike, and why why did you decide to pick him out and push him forward? Mike tells the story in his book, and it's 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 accurate. I mean, um, Mike had uh, had a couple of meetings with President Bush to talk, along with uh, Fred Kagan, some other folks, to talk about um, the surge in, in Iraq and how how we were managing all that, um, and made a uh, made an impression on President Bush. Uh, Secretary Rumsfeld uh, did come back from that and say, we need to find a place for Mike Vickers. What he didn't know was I had already been plotting and planning to try and bring Mike in because we were reorganizing the policy organization. And it was a short-lived, but I think uh, a useful experiment. I wish, frankly, it had, had survived. Mike might have a view on that. But uh, you will recall that uh, the late Art Zabrowski had an office of force transformation that was meant to be looking at the future uh, of the force and of war. He was ill and uh, that office was uh, was going to go away, but I thought it needed that the function needed to be retained. And it seemed to me that it actually fit with, uh, with Solik in the sense that Solik was a, a unique assistant secretary position that was created essentially to be a service secretary-like proponent for special operations uh, because the services themselves, the big, you know, big army, Navy, uh, Air Force, Marine Corps, never really liked special operations very much. And uh, it was one of the recognitions of Goldwater Nichols and then uh, Senator, I think, Nunn Warner, um, that that there needed to be some kind of proponency for special operations. But my th- thought was we need a special proponency for the future capabilities. We need two. So let's put that all together. And as I, you know, I had actually read uh, Mike's monograph for CSPA on the revolution in military affairs. Um, and I thought this is not, and knowing about his background in the anti-Soviet uh, war in Afghanistan, I, I thought this is someone who knows both about irregular warfare and future capabilities. So he was an ideal fit for the job. I, we'd already been thinking about that before Rumsfeld told me to give him a job. Um, and so I asked him into the Pentagon. We had a discussion and, and I think Mike asked if he could check with his wife before he said yes, but it it, it didn't take long for him to accept. And I was it was uh, it was really a, a great hire, and I was really very glad to have him, particularly as he discussed earlier when we started to intensify the uh, anti-Al-Qaeda campaign in um, in northwest Pakistan. You know, and the only thing I'd add to that is, uh, you know, I had two meetings with President Bush on Iraq strategy, one in the Oval Office and then a few weeks later with his war cabinet, including Eric at Camp David. And then after the Camp David meeting, Eric said, can you come into the Pentagon? I want to talk to you about Camp David, you know, follow up. I said, sure. I come in and, and then he said, yeah, you want to talk to me about Camp David? And he goes, no, 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 I, I don't need to talk to you about that. And he pulled out this monograph and said, this is what I want to talk to you about. And would you be interested in this job? And before that, you know, I'd been approached for a few things that just dealt with irregular warfare. And I thought, no, nah, I don't want to come back into government for just that. And then Eric made an offer I couldn't refuse. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is the 2006 QDR, Quadernial Defense Review, that we implemented over several years, um, really focused not just on making the department better at irregular warfare for the surge and other things, uh, 
the conventional ground forces, but also expanding special operations forces dramatically. But it started a new bomber program and expanded the submarine fleet. And so, you know, we did a number of things to try to address this world we were in, but also the world we saw coming. Biopreparedness was another thing. Yeah, biopreparedness, exactly. Yeah. So that's what made it a great job. What was it like going through the um, Bush-Obama transition? Because that's, I mean, uh, this may be a little bit wonky, but it's uh, that's a really interesting kind of thing because there are two presidents excruciatingly different in many respects. Of course, you have the same ultimate boss in uh, the person of Bob Gates. Um, I'm just really curious how you navigated that. And of course, you ended up with a very important role, particularly in when it came to finally getting a... Um, uh, some have been modern. Let me just say one thing before you answer, which is one of the attractions of hiring Mike was I was already thinking, you know, in 06 about, you know, what, what's going to happen after the Bush administration ends. And I was quite confident that there was a reasonable chance, even had Bob Gates not stayed on, that Mike, because of his, you know, uh, reputation, his work at CSBA before he came into government, that he would be able to stay on in a democratic administration if, if there was a transition. So just, just make that point. So, um, you know, it was our first wartime transition since 1968. And that was certainly on Bob Gates's mind. And, um, uh, you know, and it was also a party that had been out of power for eight years during this whole new series of wars and so it was a pretty monumental transition uh, in that regard. And, you know, uh, Pre President Obama ended up uh, keeping Gates, me and Jim Clapper, you know, who then ended up becoming DNI a couple years later. He was the undersecretary for intelligence uh, uh, before that. And, um, you know, one of the tasks for me um, during the transition was to prepare the, um, the briefing book for Obama on everything from nuclear weapons to our most sensitive stuff, things you would only tell the president on inauguration day, things you would tell him a little before that. Uh, and then there were things president to president, you know, that President Bush passed on to President Obama. And so it was a heck of an experience, you know, assembling everything that, you know, and I didn't do the briefing, I just prepared it, you know, Gates and, and Mullen did it for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. For the president, but uh, there was a lot more continuity in a way between Obama one and Bush two, and particularly the last few years when we were all together, uh, than people realize. I think you know one with the Afghanistan surge that Bush wanted to start, but and did start, but Iraq was consuming the lion's share of the resources. Um, and then with the Al Qaeda campaigns, and then you know efforts to um, uh, try to delay or stop Iran from getting the bomb and, uh, you know, a number of things that made it a little more easy. It was still difficult in a sense. You know, some people I knew like Michelle Flournoy very well. So that part was seamless. Others I hadn't met before. And so kind of proving my bona fides to the new national security team in the White House Situation Room took a bit of time, but uh, eventually worked out. I mean, you had to deal really quite intimately with both not just the, both presidents, but, you know, their senior people. And of course, the national security advisors were very, very different kinds of people. Uh, you know, secretaries of state were very different kinds of people. 
you know, it's really a unique vantage point that you have. Very few other people have. I guess Doug Lute uh, did as the Deputy National Security Advisor. I just wonder how you'd reflect on sort of style, culture, you know, all that, and how does it actually affect the conduct of foreign policy? You know, I think what was unusual about President Bush's last couple of years was he made some really big decisions that presidents normally don't make as they're winding down, and particularly against al-Qaeda the last six months. You know, that was extraordinary. You know, it really changed our counterterrorism campaign. And I think he had an exceptional team, um, you know, with Hadley and Jim Jeffrey at the White House and, uh, you know, you guys and Condi at State and uh, Gates, you know, uh, uh, Mike Hayden at CIA, you know, it was a very, very strong team. And, you know, to a large extent, um, having Gates the same, but Hillary Clinton was a lot of continuity in a way, I think, with Condi at State. And uh, Leon Panetta, while different background than Mike Hayden, you know, really took the bull by the horns at CIA. And so uh, Tom Donilon and Dennis McDonough after, uh, you know, the Jim Jones, Jim Steinberg and other stuff in the early part of the administration. And it settled into, you know, the new administration kind of came in wary of a lot of things you know, continuity in certain areas, but but wary of some and wasn't initially keen on the surges in Afghanistan, uh, uh, wasn't sure where they wanted to go initially with the drone campaigns, which then they really ramped up, but it took a year to kind of get there. Um, and so it took a year, I think, for that to gel. You know, the new they were very deliberate about uh, reviewing all the covert action programs and strategies that first year. But once they settled on things, you know, by the end of that first year, it looked r- remarkably similar for a while. And uh, um, and the styles, you know, even though, as you say, two very very different uh, men uh, leading the country. Um, you know, there was a lot of decentralized execution for um, uh, the Al-Qaeda campaigns and um, uh, at least for the first couple uh, years of that. And so it seemed, you know, which again was quite different uh, during the second uh, Obama term because uh, Al-Qaeda had been beaten pretty badly. Uh, Iraq was still sort of quiet. You know, ISIS hadn't risen quite yet. Uh uh, you know, it was this interregnum and it, it, it just looked and felt very different. There was a lot more White House control of things from 2013 to 2015, et cetera. So um, that, that's how I'd describe it. Really, it really is interesting. Actually, Eric, of course, you've seen multiple administrations come and go, that sometimes the biggest differences are between a first and second term uh, than between the, you know, second term and somebody else's first term. Actually, the roughest transition, and I, I went through every one between 1981 and 2009, um, was between the uh, Reagan administration and the first uh, Bush 41 term. That was the most difficult and, and uh, I would say, con- in some ways, contentious transition that, that I witnessed. Uh, it, Mike, I, I do want to uh, have you talk about the intensification of the Al-Qaeda campaign and the bin Laden raid. But you know, I I don't think we can um, let you go without 
clarifying one thing. So you were the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence when Lieutenant General Mike Flynn was the director of DIA. And when, when Flynn was fired, he has recounted that it was essentially because the Obama administration was sort of soft on, you know, soft on Al Qaeda. Would you clarify for our listeners how it looked from your vantage point as someone who had nominal oversight responsibility for, you know, for not nominal oversight responsibility for DIA as undersecretary of defense for intelligence? Yeah. So that's not true at all. You know, the, the, the white house was hardly aware of Mike Flynn, you know, until he retired. And, uh, you know, at the time, um, you know, ISIS was, um, uh, had a sanctuary in Syria and was causing trouble in Iraq, but they hadn't invaded Iraq yet. And, uh, uh, Al Qaeda had been beaten down pretty badly. And, you know, none of us wanted to take our eye off the ball, um, with them. You know, we now had the Syrian civil war and a, a few other things, but the big challenge, it was really all management and command climate at DIA. And so Jim Clapper, the DNI and I had shared responsibility for oversight of DIA and uh, with, you know, just me acting on behalf of the secretary of defense and, um, Mike was just causing a lot of turmoil um, um, to where every senior leader, you know, from the financial people to the heads of operations to the heads of analysis, were all just saying it was chaos. And so we tried to um, stabilize it and just couldn't. And um, and so uh, you know we decided with General Marty Dempsey, the chairman, and then consulting with Chuck Hagel, the secretary, that we would limit Mike's term to two years uh, and we gave him eight months notice. So we really didn't fire him. We just said, you're not going to have a three-year tour. You're going to have a two-year tour because we need some fresh leadership in here, both for the deputy and the director because they were at war and uh, we just need to bring some stability to this workforce. And also DIA was pivoting like the rest of us from wars with terrorists to starting to focus on China and Russia and needed to build a lot of new capabilities in analysis and collection and science and technology and other things. And Mike showed little interest in that. You know, he was dealing with personnel and industry and organizational wiring diagrams. And so it reached a crisis point where both Jim Clapper and I thought for the sake of the workforce, we needed to bring in fresh leadership. And we tried to let him down as gently as we, we could. It had nothing to do with the uh, international situation or people not listening to him. You know, as far as we knew, other than on Russia, where Mike saw them as a natural ally. You know, anyone who didn't like Islamic jihadists was an ally for Mike. Jim Clapper and I didn't share that view. Um, you know, our views were reasonably compatible on, on, on the need to stay on top of the jihad, what was left of the jihadists. So, uh, yeah, it was all about his management at DIA. You know, it's uh, it's a terrible thing. I think we're unfortunately getting very, very close to the end. Uh, I'll, I'm just going to say that it, this is it's not only a fantastic read. I think it's a it's really going to be a, a very interesting window into 
this period of time and some of the key events there that people are going to be looking at for a long time. You know, sometimes people write memoirs and they just, it's like a dropping a pebble in a pond. There's a ripple or two and it goes away. I think this will really be more consequential. Among other things, I, I have no idea how you managed to get as much stuff declassified as uh, as you did. And, and it's, of course, on top of that, the record of an incredible career. So I'm, I'm going to ask one little picky question as my final question. So when you were in special forces, as I understand it, one of your jobs was to prepare to emplace nuclear weapons in odd places. Can you say something about that? Sure. So, uh, you know, uh, during the Cold War, beginning in the 1950s, you know, we expanded nuclear weapons capabilities to almost every weapon system, to artillery, to, uh, you know, short range airplanes, as well as our strategic forces, you know, all across the tactical forces. And then in the early 1970s, developed the capability for our special operators, small group of special operators, Green Berets and Navy SEALs that could emplace a small device uh, at a strategic point to slow down an enemy's advance or some, you know, but beyond the reach of conventional weapons. And so I was selected when I was 23 years old uh, for this program to uh, learn how to use the device and all the restrictions that go with nuclear weapons, and then to be able to deliver it if necessary into Eastern Europe uh, by parachute or some other means. So I learned to do that with it, with it strapped uh, behind my legs for free fall or in front of my legs for a static line jump. And then, you know, all the other things that, that go with it, you know, and it, it seemed like an exciting idea when I was 23 years old, uh, you know, you know, I don't know so much anymore, but the, the weapon was um, retired uh, before the cold war ended, but toward the end of the cold war. And I don't think we're going back to those days. Yeah, so the basic idea is you light a fuse and then run like hell, huh? Well, you actually had to stay and maintain custody of the thing. Oh, gee. Um, and, 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 you know, so you had to dig a position um, to make sure someone didn't walk out, you know, after you got the command, the national command instructions to arm it and stuff. And it had a timer to where you could get away to a safe position and years later, when I was an assistant secretary, a bunch of Sandia physicists came in and they knew about my background with this thing. And they said, you know, we never got that timer to work properly. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, right, there you go. Um, we are running low on time, but I don't think we can let our guests escape without at least a cursory uh, recounting of the bin Laden raid and your role in it, Mike, and, and then we will, we will uh, for sure let you go. Sure. Um, so, you know, it was a great hunt, one of the great intelligence operations to find bin Laden after Tora Bora, and it took us nine years. And we finally tracked him through the courier in late August 2010. And for several months, there were only, it was really closely held. There were only four of us in the Department of Defense who knew about it. It was Bob Gates, the chairman and vice chairman, and me. And uh, and then uh, the sort of the Christmas holidays in the beginning of the year, the president asked us to start generating options at CIA. So I participated in that um, with CIA, ranging from B-2 airstrikes to drones to various kinds of raids. Uh, doing it with the Pakistanis or unilaterally. And I attended every meeting 
um, at the White House for special deputies, principals, and five meetings with the president. And, uh, you know, I think uh, played a role in convincing people in the end that we could do this raid and uh, that that was the right course of action, one that we should do it. And I remember President Obama's first meeting, you know, uh, with his team, he said, uh, haven't decided if we're going to do this yet, but I'm looking at the options, looking at the intelligence. If we do do it, we're going to do it sooner rather than later, and we're going to do it unilaterally. And I thought, holy crap, you know, we're, we got a good chance of doing this. Initially, everyone favored the B-2 strike, and then eventually, when that had too much collateral damage and other complications, um, we shifted to a SEAL raid, one in particular, the one we executed, and then rehearsed the heck out of it, planned for every detail. I uh, was involved intimately in a lot of that, and uh, um, uh, and then you know saw it through. And um, uh, the operation was done under CIA authorities, so I was at CIA the afternoon of the operation, where Admiral McRaven was reporting in to uh, Director Panetta, and then uh, Panetta and I. Uh, and Michael Morell, the deputy director, went to the White House after the operation was done and briefed them, you know, decided, helped the president with his speech and then briefed the press around midnight. And when I left White House uh, grounds at um, like three in the morning, uh, I heard all these students outside chanting USA, USA, and then CIA, CIA. And I thought, I better just stop and listen to this for a few seconds because I'm never going to hear this again in my life. And <laughs> I did then drove back to CIA, got my car and went home. What a tale. Our guest has been Michael Vickers, the author of By All Means Available, Memoirs of a Life in Intelligence, Special Operations and Strategy. And as my colleague, Elliot Cohen has said, it is a fantastic read. Mike, thank you so much for being our guest today. Oh, it's such a great pleasure to be with you both. If you enjoyed this episode of Shield of the Republic, leave us a review on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week with a postmortem on the by then just concluded NATO summit.